You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Are we live? <laughs> we are live. Well, then let's get started. Hello, Will. <laughs> Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Hello to you both. And hello, everybody on the YouTube. I got to use this hand because that's the hand that's on camera. Yes, it is. Welcome to our second episode of Live Chat. Episode two of our Live Chat, which, as we are updating right now, is about turtles. We are joined today by Dr. Stephen Jasinski. Steve, if you would please introduce yourself. Uh, who are you and what do you do? Certainly. I am the head of the Department of Paleontology and Geology at the State Museum of Pennsylvania. Um, and while I study numerous things, one of my main focal points is turtles and the evolution of turtles, especially focused on, I suppose, not the origins, things after the origins of turtles, but certainly I get to focus in a lot on that as well throughout the rest of my research. So very happy to be here and talk about a group that I have grown up with and enjoyed more as time has gone on rather than less. Excellent. We are happy to have you. As a reminder for everybody listening, our live chat series, the idea is that we are bringing on someone to talk with us about topics we've covered on the podcast before. We did Turtles back in episode 60. Mm -hmm. We have a bunch of questions here that we have collected from our followers on social media, and we're going to start asking them of Steve. And as we go, if you are here watching live in the chat, feel free to add your own questions and we'll read those out as well. We're going to go until 8 o'clock our time or until we run out of questions, whichever comes first. Steve, <laughs> uh, before we get into the questions from our uh, followers, please explain just a, a bit of what some of your turtle research has been. Uh, maybe focus on some recent Certainly. stuff. <laughs> so I, I got into turtles probably mainly because I started working with dinosaurs, which seemingly a lot of people do. And there was a lot of turtle material from the time I was looking at the end of the Cretaceous. And there oftentimes is a lot of turtle material when you're looking in those kind of things, especially in those environments. And so I started looking at turtles from the late Cretaceous uh, in the southwestern U.S. and did a fair amount of research on that, looking just at what kinds were there, um, how they related to each other, paleobiology and environmental reconstructions and things like that. After that, I um, went to get my master's degree down in Tennessee with two people that you all the listeners should be relatively <laughs> well versed with. And so I started working on uh, turtles from the latest Miocene, early Pliocene at the Gray Fossil Site. And my master's research was on the fossil species of slider turtle or trachomies that's found there. And I got to name that just, what, a year and a half, two years ago, whatever that is now, after the preparator extraordinaire at the site, who everyone loves, and <laughs> it's it's well-deserved, um, <laughs> Sean Hagrid. So that works out well. Um, I am still doing a lot of research with both older and younger turtles, even now. So I still am working on several projects with uh, turtles from the southwestern U.S., and I worked on a project with Mexican turtles with David from the Pleistocene, I'm still working on several new species from the Gray Fossil Site, so um, you can expect to see a couple new species of turtles coming from the Gray Fossil Site pretty soon with that as well. Excellent. Uh, also working with fossil turtles from 
the Dakotas and some from the, I guess, Calvert Cliffs area down in Maryland and that kind of thing, along with lots of reviews with old material as well. So getting my hand in a lot of different areas, I suppose, with turtles. Excellent. Yes, like uh, for those who listened to the last one, the last live chat, like with Leah, Steve is another of our friends from our master's program mm-hmm. at East Tennessee State University, which uh, you will notice, as I said last time, is a trend. Stay, <laughs> stay tuned. Well, let's start jumping into some of the questions we got from our listeners. Now, I'm going to start with a double because two of our listeners asked very similar questions. These are a little bit uh, more personal for Steve. Question uh, from Sal on Twitter who asked, why are turtles so cool? And on Facebook, Hans, who went a, a step further and asked, why are turtles the coolest vertebrates? Uh, controversial. It, yeah, no, we're, so, we're, we're starting <laughs> off with the controversies. I actually see no controversy. I, I think that's pretty straightforward. That's but, all the time we um, have for live chat today. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of it is the idea that they have a body plan that is so distinct from just everything else we see today um, in nature. Um, it's pretty astounding what they've actually done morphologically with their ball plan. They just The ability to create this fortress of bone around the outside of the body gives them such a distinct shape and look that it's pretty hard not to know a turtle when you see it. And so I think that's certainly part of it. And the extremes they went to to create that body plan is also pretty amazing. So even though there's there's talk in the fossil record about the idea of them having things like kind of coalescing osteoderms over the entire body to get things like the shell, which is has been discussed and is not as well accepted, but certainly I suppose a possibility, at least for some researchers. Regardless, the, the extremes they've gone to are absolutely incredible. And then the ability to use that to do to get into all the environments they can is also pretty outrageous. So the ability to change the limbs and get back to the ocean, um, certainly they're not the only groups to have done that, but sea turtles seem to be really loved by a lot of people. Very understandably, they're pretty incredible animals. And that really, really helps certainly with with what they're able to do, and just the the enjoyment that we get out of them. So I think another kind of lead into that is the idea that a lot of people are around turtles. Turtles, at least certain turtles, are maybe potentially bad in their in their form, easy to catch. And so many people have had pet turtles also in the past, um, which potentially gives them a little bit more leeway to actually enjoying having turtles around. So I know that when I was younger, I had a lot of turtles. Looking back, it's probably not the best scenario. <laughs> but same. Yeah, it's just how it works oftentimes <laughs> and you learn things as you go. But uh certainly I think that leads to a, lo- a love for a lot more people in having seen them so up close and personally in that kind of situation to enjoy them even that much more. Um oh, cool. And so unless you have something weird for some of the weird weird turtles that are out there, um, they're all pretty distinct, and I think that definitely helps increase their coolness far more than, you know, other random reptiles that people don't really care that much about. Like dinosaurs. Like dinosaurs. Yeah, like dinosaurs. Let's like dinosaurs. get into I mean, some questions even lower on them. <laughs> about turtle evolution. So we're going to start uh, in, with their evolutionary history. This is another one from Hans, who asks, how has our understanding of turtle phylogeny changed in the last years. That is to say, where turtles fit on the reptile family tree, 
Are they still jumping around uh, within the diapsid reptiles, or have they started to settle somewhere? So I do think that the the more recent research on things like Papochiales from the Middle Triassic has definitely helped calm that down a little bit, but there's still disagreement, I suppose, as to exactly where they fall. Um, and even so, the, the actual lineage or the movements that they have as they go through time for evolutionary changes. So... Of course, if you, if you look at it, in many ways, it looks like it's relatively step straightforward. If you look at things like Unotosaurus into things like Odontochiles and Papochiles and Proganochiles, it looks like it's fairly stepped. And you have a semi-consistent movement through time of the features that you're looking at for these animals. And certainly with Papochiles, that pointed and still does point more to the idea these being diapsids. And some people might not like it. But closer to pitosauromorphs, lepidosaurs in general, than say archosaurs. But so that um, is to say, regardless, lizards and snakes as opposed to crocs and dinosaurs. Correct. Yes, but there's still some inconsistencies when you look at even the animals that are that are making up this lineage, as to things like the coverage of, say, the carapace, the the top shell of the the turtle itself, and the coverage of the expanded ribs, and what that may mean. So there certainly has been talk as well, looking at the osteoderm side of things, that you have these ribs that start to flatten out a bit, but then you get osteoderms to fuse to the ribs, and then all just kind of fuse together into this gigantic pile that makes up the carapace itself. Uh, that's not as well accepted, but it certainly is a thought, rather than the ribs consistently growing until they kind of fuse together to form the top of the shell itself. But... If you look at some animals like Unotosaurus, I would say there's a larger amount of coverage in the carapace than if you look at animals like Odontochiles, which is much younger. So how do you potentially lose some of the carapacial covering? And then between those two animals, you basically create a large plastron of the lower shell in Odontochiles. So I think there's some inconsistency in the rate that these things are coming about. And of course, you also have animals pariasaurs and groups earlier on that also have shell-like features. So the shell or a shell-like feature has probably evolved multiple times, and there's a good chance that in the Permian and into the Triassic, you probably have multiple groups trying this out, trying out the features of expanding things like the bones to have them be more of a defense mechanism than just a straight structural stability mechanism. And, and is so that diversity it wouldn't surprise me. of different shelled or shell-like other creatures make it harder to figure out where turtles actually fit in? I think so, because I think you have multiple groups converging to a similar body type, being a shell-like structure. And I think then that's causing a lot of inconsistency in how people are reading the fossil record. So even though we think we have a, good, a better handle on the fossil record right now, and we probably do... There is certainly a possibility that what we're looking at are actually not turtle ancestors, <laughs> but animals that converged with turtle ancestors, which is making the record even harder to read. Okay, interesting. So that, and that uh, nicely, uh, I think, adds a, a bit of an answer to another question we got, which is why turtle evolution is so mysterious, and which I think <laughs> you just covered fairly well. On the note of early turtles, so the earliest turtles, Aaron on Twitter asked, were the early ancestors of turtles already beaked? Did they have beaks? Or 
were there, okay, or were there some basal groups with teeth? And I will add to that, are the beak and teeth in turtles exclusive of each other? So, yes, essentially. They, the beak seems to evolve rather quickly. You start losing teeth in that sense early on, at least the teeth that you think of normally in the actual our teeth. Turtle ancestors certainly maintain some teeth, but um, as at least some of your readers or readers, listeners are probably aware of, <laughs> either way, right? Um, they maintain teeth on the palate. So things like pterygoid and palatine and boomerang teeth maintain for longer. They still lose them before you get to what we consider true turtles. But for stem turtles, really basal ancestors that aren't quite turtles but close to it, they maintain those for a while. The beak evolves earlier, and what you tend to get is flat sides with an elongate front that acts like a tooth. Now, that was probably for a particular ecological reason, probably for whatever they might be eating. I don't know what. I'll arbitrarily say it was like a can opener. Um <laughs> So they were Which is kind of the way it looked in many tuna ways. Tuna fish. Yeah. Bumblebee exactly. tuna. <laughs> Bumblebee tuna is correct. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, it's the, the beak evolves earlier, but they've already lost the, the teeth on the outer portions, what you consider the, man, the, the, the maxillae and mandibular teeth that we could think of as normal teeth are gone by the time the beak shows up. Okay. And that happens before you get to actual turf. So in ancestors, that's already there. Very cool. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a cool description. Another question about turtle evolution uh, going rather far back from Mark on Facebook. Do turtles have a have an old world, new world divide like primates do? Or is it more complicated? So uh, listeners may remember from episode seven, we talked about how the new world monkeys and the old world mm -hmm. monkeys are basically are two totally different groups. Yep. Are turtles that way? So there is some New World, Old World disconnect in, in, in turtle groups, I would say. You look at certain groups like the Amidids, they're what we commonly think of as the normal pond turtles. That includes things like sliders and pan turtles, but it also includes more terrestrial things like box turtles. Almost everything is New World, and almost everything is, well, it's essentially New World with a lot, especially to the, more to the north in North America, rather than really far south in South America. And you basically have one genus that is in Europe, but that's all. If you look at things like the Geomidids, a sister group to that group, almost everything is Old World, almost everything is Asia and Africa, and you have a single genus, Rhinoclemmies, in the New World, mainly in um, Mexico and south through Central America into Northern South America. And what turtle is what that? What turtles really, uh, it's commonly called the um, painted wood turtle. Okay. They're still, they're actually somewhat common in some pet shops. You can still find them, actually. Okay, right. So certain families are split, um, mostly yeah, old world, if you mostly look at, new world. But if you look at things like tortoises, testudinids, they are significantly all over the place. <laughs> so there's lots in the new world um, and all kinds of islands. There's tons in the old world in Europe and Africa and everything like that. Hmm. But in reality, turtles mainly separated out to the north and south. And that's okay. because the two groups actually separated out when those continents were separating in the Mesozoic. So if you look at the northern continents, basically mainly North America, Europe, and Asia, they have a set group of turtles, and that's mostly more along the lines of the cryptodires, um, the ones that pull their head in straight back. Yes. <laughs> S-style, looking from the side. 
Um, and if you go to the south, mainly South America, Africa, and Australia, you get the pleurodires. So the snake nectar of the side, exactly sideways like that. And so there's far more of a north-south separation than new world, old world separation for turtles. Okay. That makes sense. Primates didn't differentiate as we know them today until the split became east-west. Yeah. Turtles go back quite a bit farther. Let's start going through some questions about some specific fossil turtles. And I will start, actually, with a question we got in the chat here. Martin asked, why do you think myelania, so we'll explain what myelania is, evolved convergently with ankylosaurs? Cool question. So first, (laughs) please explain what myelania is and what ankylosaurs are, and then why are they similar? (laughs) So ankylosaurs, I guess we'll start out with ankylosaurs, the non-turtle version are, of course, dinosaurs that were quadrupedal, herbivores, walked on four legs, ate plants, and they were covered in osteoderms and basically acted like gigantic tanks. And they got very, very large, you know. Basically, um, I think Ankylosaurus got up in the 20 to 30 foot range or something like that. So, you know, 7 to 10 meters in that range. Very large animals. Uh, Myolania is a turtle that was around more along the lines of thousands to several million years ago. And it's part of a group of turtles called the Myolanids, which were essentially had a lot of extra osteoderms and, in a way, body armor to kind of make themselves beefier. Their skulls, as well, were absolutely huge and heavily reinforced. They have small horn-like structures coming off various parts of the skulls. In fact, I know at least one is called the horn turtle because it looks like it has horns on the top of its skull. Yep. So... There's a lot of really weird aspects of those turtles, and they're especially well-known from Australia. So they were also then living at a time as certain gigantic lizards were around, uh, varanids that no one actually likes. I like um, <laughs> giant monitors. <laughs> <laughs> but there were certainly large predatory animals around that would have been bothering them that suggest that extra armor would have been necessary. Okay. They seem to also have, similar to a couple other mammals, There's they basically formed osteoderms around the tail itself. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have been completely terrestrial, and they, they would not have been able to pull themselves in and protect themselves, which is why a reinforced skull and a heavily armored tail would have been useful for anything going after them. So they fused a lot of the distal caudal vertebrae, which basically made it act like a club, a really enforced chunk of tail with a lot of osteoderms around it. So they basically would have had a club tail that was covered in armor along with heavily armored heads and limbs. Um, And they lived for a fair amount of time. We have a good fossil record of them from where they are at. Because they were so heavily armored, it's not that difficult to actually get remains from them. And we still don't really know exactly why they went extinct. Um, it was at a similar time to a lot of other quote-unquote megafauna, even though they don't fit that definition necessarily, was going extinct as well. So we're still not quite certain. We just barely missed them, um, which is really, really sad. But as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of then, including with the back, there were multiple genera. Myelania was the first one and the one that potentially is most well-known, but there were numerous other ones. And so you probably know where I'm going with this, but they certainly had the genus Ninjemmies as well. and <laughs> Who can't love Ninjemmies? Um, it was named after some Ninja Turtles <laughs> of, of a sort, which is what the name means. So I like um, that paper a, a, 
sometimes when paleontologists name things after dorky stuff, they try to, like, hide it. Well, they have to get creative to make it seem like it's still a, a scientific reason. Right, right. But that paper, I forget who it was that, that named Ninjemis. I think it was Gene Gaffney. Okay. And in the etymology description, it says in the paper, named after that fearsome foursome. Which is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I. It is also helpful, once you get to a certain point in your career, you can say those things and everyone is just going to be okay with it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what was the point in getting to that point in your career, if not... Absolutely. So some more fossil turtle questions. This one uh, from AJ on Facebook starts off uh, with a general question and then a fossil question. What are the differences between tortoise and turtle? How do you tell the difference? And then in the fossil record, do we have a good record of the divide between turtle and tortoise? That certainly is a good question. So, of course... You guys probably deal with things along the lines of the common names of animals all the time. And so one of the common ways to try to separate these animals out was turtle and tortoise. And I've oftentimes seen that the, the basics around those are that anything terrestrial is considered tortoise. And anything aquatic or semi-aquatic in the water, some, a lot of the time, is a turtle. In reality, of course, they are all turtles. And tortoises are a small group of turtles. So the tortoises themselves are actually just members of the family Tessudinidae. The Tessudinids are a, a smaller group that is just the tortoises themselves. And there are certainly portions of definitions that, that there are definitions that separate out those from other members and groups morphologically so we can clearly tell the difference. For a circumstance like this, tortoises are normally more highly domed versions that are completely terrestrial and they don't do really any swimming. Their limbs are more columnar and chunky and fat, so they really can't do much in the water. Yeah. They just kind of slowly walk around um, and do their thing. But in reality, that would be the closest you could get probably rather than the idea of something completely terrestrial versus something semi-aquatic. The same thing with the idea that commonly people use the term terrapin. And that's oftentimes been used for aquatic turtles too, but in reality, that's actually a single, actually a single species, but a single genus of turtle known from essentially the east and south coast of the U.S. Okay. Now, in terms of tortoise evolution, so with the testudinid specifically, the tortoise family, mm -hmm. is there much known about the origins of the tortoises from? other turtles. I have heard some wacky things about <laughs> hypotheses uh, in tortoise evolution. What can you say? It's tortoise, the, the early tortoises are still kind of up in the air um, as far as what we know about them. It looks like they were evolving at a time when a lot of newer groups were either evolving or really taking off, which is basically in the Eocene. We start getting the early forms of what we see as tortoises, and they're part of a group that was semi-aquatic to aquatic at that point in time. So they're part of a superfamily called the Testudinoidea, and basically they are kind of combined with New World and Old World pond turtles, the Imidids and the Geomidids. And what this group was doing was they were kind of bouncing all over the place. We started getting the earliest ones at the very end of the Cretaceous, and probably after the, the KPG extinction, they finally got some openings. Some old tur turtle groups actually died off and went extinct. 
So they started being able to diversify um, their disparity. The total difference in body shapes started kind of going more wild. And there were just a lot of open niches or resources available to them. So they started kind of slowly working their way up in the Eocene. We basically um, just finished with the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum, which basically means at the end of the Paleocene, temperatures were really, really high. And that basically means that turtles, being cold-blooded, were able to go all over the place. But as you cool down, your populations become smaller, the places you can live become smaller, and normally populations become separated out, and you get speciation events. And that's what we think is probably happening, is that as temperatures are cooling down, these turtles start basically speciating or creating a lot of new species in a lot of small areas, and then you get turtles that are focusing in on terrestrial areas. And certainly we know when we think about tortoises, oftentimes here in the U.S. we think about things like desert tortoises. Um, even gopher tortoises are really sandy areas oftentimes. In a situation where there's, it's a lot less water content, depending on where you're at. But that's not the case for all tortoises everywhere, especially when you think about especially some of the southern versions or even the one on the islands. Conditions are highly variable. But this is a group that started out probably in the Eocene by the Oligocene. If you, you know what the White River Group is, it's a famous Oligocene site in the Great Plains in the northern U.S. Turtle tortoise fossils are insanely common. Um, I've heard oftentimes, unfortunately, that people are told when you see a tortoise, ignore it because there's going to be 50 others, so don't collect it, which I find incredibly disheartening and sad. Um, but but regardless, it's one of those things where there's, they're all over the place. Within the first couple million years, they really start becoming very, very common, um, and that's how we get so many of them today. Okay, cool. Fascinating history yeah. of this group. My other, uh, my next question for turtle fossils from our audience is one that Will will enjoy. Hey. Would you like to read this one from Joel on Facebook? <laughs> All right. Joel asks, or says, I saw a croc and turtle hanging out together on a log during a relatively recent trip to Louisiana. Is there any evidence of croc predation on turtles in the fossil record? Alas, there is. Yeah, there um. is. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool question. There are, are certainly quite a few fossils, um... Turtles, it's, it's relatively common to find them with bite marks in their shells. Now, exactly what that means, it potentially is hard to say. I've, I've seen a lot of research done with invertebrates, of course, who have shells. And normally what you see is that you see the, the failed attempts at predation. So you see them after they survive. And that could be a similar situation in a lot of this where a turtle gets bit, you get bite marks. But if the turtle was actually killed and eaten, it would have been crushed, right? There wouldn't be a whole lot of shell left, or at least wouldn't be in a lot of small fragments. So uh, there's a, a lot of evidence of crocodilians, unfortunately, um, predating <laughs> on turtles throughout the time that they have interacted with each other. Uh, but I don't know how often they were successful. Yeah, well, I mean, and to be fair to that note, it, you can go look up videos of gators eating turtles. Like, there's tons of those. Be careful if you do, because they're gruesome. Um, but like, they, they look gruesome and they sound. They are. Gruesome. The audio is very Ugh. immersive. Um, <laughs> but when they do, they they don't like eat the turtle like you would picture them eating. You know, like a crocodile eating a buffalo. They get the turtle, crunch it 
in their mouth and then swallow said turtle. And yeah. like once you've been swallowed by a crocodilian, not a lot of that makes it through to fossilizable quality <laughs> gets no. digested. So yeah, I I it would make sense that a lot of the marks we're getting could very well be from successful escapees. Yeah. We had one at least one or two at the Gray Fossil site. Yeah. In did. fact, I believe it's the holotype, the the reference specimen of our musk turtle has two holes in it mm-hmm. that appear to be gator tooth marks. Yes, and that is definitely common. It's we actually um on the the one trip we went uh further south, we collected a lot of alligator specimens. And among those alligator specimens, if you remember, was a lot of turtles that had been ingested and eaten and were only partially basically broken down. Um, and it, it, it's easy to see how quickly stomach acid from crocodilians breaks down bone um, and really does not leave anything left over to be able to actually identify what it was. Do we know? So I know that crocs have, like you're saying, very uh, active and and Harsh, harsh stomach acid. Snakes are also very similar. Not much makes it out the other end of a snake. What about turtles? How do turtles digest? Do they have... Because a lot of turtles are carnivorous as well. They're dealing with the same sort of material. I, I, the What you get out the other end is pretty similar to the other reptilians. In that there is not much you can tell about what's going on. Um, interesting. It also doesn't come out in, in a very interesting shape. A lot of tur- – well, I guess it highly varies depending on what the turtles are eating. Um, a lot of turtles are omnivorous, at least to a point. There's less that are hyper-carnivorous or eating pretty much basically nothing but meat. And a lot of turtles, of course, are small enough that what they're eating are all invertebrates. And so you're only getting very, very tiny, squishy things um, that are going to be there anyway. Fair point. I want to get to a question. We we were sent a question on Twitter. Cool. Which is from Ligus or Ligus. Feel free to correct me uh, when you hear this and get a chance. Now, earlier you were talking a bit about how the shell evolved, which is one of their questions. But uh, the secondary question here, which I think is fun, how did turtles or their ancestors look before they had shells? Ooh. They probably looked like chunky lizards. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the picture I see. It, <laughs> I would I would say that you probably have a the the earlier ones before you had shells you would have started having probably the ribs kind of widening out a bit uh, in both directions and so in many ways it might have looked as the, especially as it goes laterally kind of like a somewhat pregnant or gravid lizard before you actually start getting things separating out and therefore the ribs kind of expanding even further um, it's still a little bit up in the air as to what happens as the ribs expand and kind of flatten out, then the skin has to get thin enough, I suppose, that eventually you're getting a keratinous covering. So you're just covering the shell in these keratinous scoots rather than skin as we see it. And the skin is then reduced to the limbs, the head, the tail, and then basically the openings within the shell itself. Okay. Yeah, I've so seen some... We're art- still not quite sure on that. I've seen some artistic reconstructions of the early one, like Papokiles and stuff, and they remind me of like a, a, a oh, I'm losing the the word, the Phrynosomatids, the horned lizards, yep, yep. where they kind of flatten themselves against the ground. Yeah, the horny they, toads. They look like a pancake. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. One other question from our uh, earlier list: 
about fossil questions. This is from Katie on Facebook, who wants to hear... Now, Katie says everything possible. We're not going to do that. So <laughs> Everything um, possible up until 8 o'clock. A brief <laughs> note. Give us a comment on stupendemies. <laughs> what is stupendemies, and what is your favorite thing about stupendemies? <laughs> so stupendemies is well known for being one of the largest turtles, and I think it's it's especially interesting in that it came out at a time where the biggest turtles we were getting were marine forms. So we were thinking about things like, especially Archelon, but things like Archelon and the Protostagians in general, we were getting these really, really, really large turtles. And Stupendomies, to a point, somewhat bucked that trend by being at least a less, uh, not a marine, but an aquatic slash semi-aquatic turtle um, that was also just gigantic in size. So we don't have a complete specimen, which is not overly uncommon, seeing as when you look at the size of some, these kind of things and you think about the fossil record in general, we don't have as much material as we would like. But it really shows, to a point, partially the size that a lot of these freshwater turtles could actually get to. And then you combine that with things like carbon emmies, so a much younger, um, well, not younger as in geologic time, but younger as in since we've, we've found them, uh, finds as far as fossil turtles are concerned. And we start getting a better idea of the size that some of these turtles can actually get to later on. So in that sense, the name helps a lot with stupendomies because it was a spectacular <laughs> name. It's but name. <laughs> so, it is. They did, a, they did a good job. So today, the largest turtles today are sea turtles. Yes. But the leatherbacks that are six feet or more in length. Mm -hmm. What are the largest freshwater turtles today? Oh, um, if you know. Actually, right yeah. So actually... Uh, there are some really big freshwater turtles if you look at Asian softshell turtles. So the um, I think it's just called the Asian giant softshell. There's also flat, they, sometimes they call them flap shells over there. But if you look at some of, they're the tr it's the trinicid family, but softshell turtles from Asia, um, especially the giant Asian softshell turtle, the size is actually really, really close if you look at just dimensions to leatherbacks and things like that. Wow. So getting a five to almost six foot softshell turtle is still possible um, over in Asia. They're very rare. There's very, very few of them. And in fact, I think the one, they they were down to like three individuals of the one species. So um, it's really unfortunate. But they don't get to weigh nearly as much because softshell turtles tend to get really flat like pancakes. So if you think about a pancake, it's actually almost exactly what a turtle looks like, just put a head and legs on it, and that's just, that's a softshell <laughs> turtle. But they they definitely get to be close to that size. And, and it's partially what that shows as well as just the fact that turtles are one of the the animals that is doing worst with conservation in general. Um, they are some of the most endangered animals out there, at least as far as vertebrates are concerned. So they, there's a lot that are doing very, very poorly. And when I say things like three individuals left, that's not as uncommon with some species of turtles as I wish it was. Mm. It is a sad time for turtles, really. I wonder how much of what you were saying earlier about uh, turtles being a little more, uh, if not commonplace, accessible for people to get experiences with, if if that has had an effect of making it seem like turtles are no big deal. <laughs> that, like, we don't have to worry about them going away because there's always turtles in the yeah, pond there they are there's so many turtles like sea turtles have gotten more publicity but they are rare you know you don't see them very often yes. but 
Well, a pond turtle is a pond turtle. And indeed, we do actually have a question from Twitter hey. before this, but from Wade, who's asking about box turtles. Wade says, I used to see them all the time growing up. Now I may see a couple a year if I'm lucky. They're in the Ohio, southwest Ohio area. How is the overall population of box turtles faring? And is there anything people in general can do to help improve their numbers? So it's an excellent question. And I, I've heard this numerous times. In fact, my, my father tells me all the time how box turtles used to be so common and they had a garden and there was always like a half dozen box turtles just wandering through the garden, stealing tomatoes um, and then <laughs> running away at full speed. But now um, I, I know even when I was, <laughs> yeah, I know even when I was really, really young, they used to be a lot more common and it was minimum not that uncommon to take a walk in the woods and see several of them. Uh, and now I'd say it's been years since I saw one in the area that I'm in right now. So some turtles, especially box turtles, I think because they're more focused on being terrestrial and being just on land and the resources they need are being removed quickly by development and things like that. You just have a lot less habitat for them. Most turtles actually don't need that much area to live in comfortably. I know of certain species of turtles, especially more aquatic turtles, but certain species of turtles who probably survive in a hundred meter by hundred meter square area for like their entire lives. So not all turtles need a huge amount of area, but they need it to be full of resources that they actually desire. And for turtles especially, you need a population there because what the way we normally see turtles right now is that if you don't have enough males and females, especially females, males just start walking. They'll just start wandering away to look for someone to mate with once they get into that basic age range and time range. And so normally now people see turtles crossing roads. And unfortunately, normally when you see them crossing roads, they're not the fastest animals. They all You also see them never leaving that road. So the number of turtles hit by looking for not necessarily better areas, but more turtles to mate with is becoming really, really high. And it's led to really, really low numbers for a lot of turtles. Certain turtles as well need things like pristine water conditions. Um, amphibians deal with a lot of the same problems. And we as humans do a really good job at messing with water quality and things like that. So that leads to them either leaving or dying off. And you keep getting less and less and less. So I think it depends on the area you're in. When I was down trapping turtles in Tennessee and close to certain more wilderness areas, and David joined me on several of those, certainly, yep. there, was a lot of, there was a lot of box turtles. And so they were actually very common on the road and everywhere else. They were just all over the place. But up closer to where I'm at here in Pennsylvania, and certainly it doesn't surprise me in Ohio then, they are not nearly as common. And uh, in many ways, they're probably completely extirpated or extinct in smaller areas and pushed out. Yeah. So I think it depends on the type of turtle and the type of area. Slider turtles are very good at living in lots of conditions all over the place. But then, of course, what happens with them is they basically outcompete normal native turtles for the resources and they create extinction of native populations of whatever turtles are already there. Right. So you might be thinking that it's no big deal because there's already turtles there. You know, these old former pets can just be released, but they might cause the turtles who are already living there to go extinct. 
by outcompeting them. And that's a common thing. Um, I've actually reviewed a couple papers looking at the impact of things like slider turtles in places over in Europe like Italy and what they're doing to native populations of the European pond turtle and things like that. So it causes a lot of damage, unfortunately. I love turtles, but we don't need to um, cause more problems for the ones that we are aware of that should be there. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a tough place to be a, a small, charismatic, especially aquatic-tied animal these days. Yeah. Let's get into some questions. Some some happier questions. Well, actually, this next one I'm going to read is not happy at all. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go into some questions about turtle features, uh, aspects of turtle Mm -hmm. biology. Ian, in our YouTube chat, has asked, basically saying, for people, if we pierce the ribcage, it interrupts our breathing system. Since turtle shells are their ribcage... Does it, if a turtle's shell is pierced or damaged, does that interrupt their breathing as well? It still does because what you end up having is a closed system. And when you open up that system, you're going to cause problems. So um, I have, but they, they also have a better ability to deal then with that potential difficulty due to their breathing setup. So I certainly have been around turtles. Um, I, I said this before numerous times, but it's amazing the number of leaves I have stopped to save on the road, thinking they were turtles. <laughs> yep. I stop at anything that I think is an animal, and it's almost always a leaf or stick. But um, for the ones I have gotten to that have been recently hit, sometimes, I, unfortunately, I see them get hit, and I have to go out and try to check on them, and they're still alive, you can see movement within the body cavity as there is a puncture, a hole in the shell itself. It's, and as, but as long as you get it covered... And basically, to a point, you make sure no infection gets in, but you also help seal that up. Um, it helps protect them from both more infection, but also the ability to breathe a lot easier. Right, right. And indeed, speaking of breathing, uh, this is our friend Lucas asked on Facebook. So go, going into the, the turtle breathing system, some turtles breathe through their cloacas. Now, Lucas specifically is asking about cloacal breathing in sea turtles, mm-hmm. but his two questions are, how old is this adaptation uh, evolutionarily, and how widely do we see it? Do we see it in freshwater turtles as well as sea turtles? So I guess three questions for you, Steve. Number one, what is <laughs> cloacal breathing to begin with? And then what turtles have mm-hmm. it and how far back does it go? Okay, good question. I'm sure at least some of your listeners are aware that there's another term for cloacal breathing, right? Cloacal respiration. Yes. <laughs> so we will we will use that as butt breathing. Yeah! Um, a <laughs> very enjoyable term. <laughs> um, in reality, of course, what is happening is that there is a lot of vessels close to the outer layer of skin that allows them to take in things like oxygen from the water itself. So it's not nearly as efficient as actual breathing, but it allows them to still get oxygen um, and maintain respiration. And called butt breathing because there is an especially large amount of vessels around the opening of the anus um, that allows them to do that especially well around the butt. And (laughs) sea turtles, of course, can do this and stay underwater for a lot longer than what you would normally think of an animal who could stay underwater for something like that. But this is actually very common in pretty much all turtles, especially any turtles that are found in higher latitudes because it's commonly used during hibernation. So one of the reasons, one of the things turtles do when it gets really cold 
in higher latitudes is they hibernate. And in order to do that, you can't have them be completely frozen. So they try to get below the water line, below the freezing level and stay in water and then basically stay under there and get passively get this oxygen in their system and they can survive throughout the winter and be okay. So in that sense, because it's so widespread in turtles and because it seems to be an adaptation probably originally for things like hibernation, higher latitudes, and therefore cooler temperatures, I think it can be relatively certain that it probably evolved as soon as turtles started having to hibernate anything aquatic as far as the aquatic turtles having to hibernate. So as soon as we started getting pond turtles in colder temperatures anywhere, it probably was present. And we know that we get turtles in some very high latitudes in the later Mesozoic and the Cretaceous. Now, even though it was warmer then, we still have freezing temperatures and snow at least close to the poles where we're getting things like dinosaurs. And so we can be pretty confident that it would have evolved at least by that time, at least in the Cretaceous, for what these turtles were doing. The earliest turtles and turtle ancestors seem to be found closer to the equator. So it probably wasn't present necessarily before them, or at least doesn't necessarily seem to be, with that being the earliest versions. But as soon as we start getting turtles moving further away from the equator and up to higher latitudes, they were probably already butt-breathing as soon as they had to hibernate. Cool. Fascinating. <laughs> I love it. It's one, it was my favorite turtle fact to share when I was at the aquarium. <laughs> well, you go, you, you dive down and you stay underwater for a long time so the dinosaurs don't get you. Yeah. Oh, I, the way I always describe <laughs> it to the kids is that to think of it as a reverse fart or backwards snorkeling. <laughs> suck it in (laughs) (laughs) speaking of aquatic adaptations in turtles michael on facebook asked us how does a soft shell benefit certain species of turtles the turtles that have soft shells so the soft shell does have a hard core in it one of the the big things that soft shell turtles have it's different than other turtles is that they don't have the keratinized covering over their shell. So the scoots that we think of aren't there, which allows the shell to be leathery and also a little more flexible. And they don't get what would be the peripherals. So the the small bones on the outer edge of the shell um, that help kind of hold those things together. So it allows them to be a little bit more flexible. And presumably, especially with smaller versions, this allows them to be more mobile and do things like sit on the the bottom, which is oftentimes what they do. I know oftentimes when I've seen softshell turtles, what they tend to do is dig under layers of mud and just keep their nose and sometimes a little bit of their head or face out of the mud. Uh, and so they're, they're really more ambush predators, similar to things like snapping turtles and that kind of thing. But it allows them to be more mobile. It also allows them to basically shimmy and get underneath those things. Snapping turtles can't really dig underneath anything. They just sit on the bottom like a rock, um, whereas softshell turtles kind of, you know, try to just disguise themselves as mud or dirt oftentimes. So I think okay. it's a difference in ecology as to potentially probably what was originally pushing that and why they are behaving differently now. Softshell turtle shells, the bones look very different. So if you ever see a softshell turtle skeleton, it's, it's really cool because it looks like an incomplete turtle shell. Mm-hmm. Like it was, they were making a turtle shell and then abandoned it. Yeah, when you, normal turtles, the ribs are together like that, and soft shells. Yeah, it's all, you've, there's got yeah, gaps. It's, it's like a, a shell scaffolding. Yeah. Yeah. Which is neat. The middle of the shell is still pretty solid, and it looks like basically what happens because the way we think of, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Because when we think of turtles, how they evolve embryologically, right? So 
as they as they grow up from little things to bigger things, um, you get the shell growing oftentimes from the center and out towards the edges as it goes. And so basically what happens is soft shells just kind of stop midway through and they're like, <laughs> ah, we quit. We don't feel like going any further. Yeah, non-committal. So, <laughs> so, so that's why the end, the ribs on the very ends tend to stay free um, compared to other turtles. So we've got a couple, just a few more questions in our last several minutes here. One is from Devin on Facebook who's asking about turtles' ability to sense magnetic fields and mm. such. So we've talked on the podcast about how turtles are one of the animals that have a magnetic sense that helps them to navigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, to condense a couple of these questions, uh, Devin's basically asking, do we know how they do it? And do we know how that might have evolved? So certainly my research is not directly in this area, but I, I certainly know at least some of it. And mostly when you look at the idea of magnetic reception and the ability to, to detect these magnetic fields, there's two main lines of thinking as to what's happening. And one of them is the idea that they have kind of incorporated magnetite into portions of the body, especially around things like nerves. But the magnetite is able to then detect very minor magnetic fields. And as you move, they get stronger or weaker, and you can get a better idea of kind of where you're coming from. There is a, another form that looks at potentially the idea of differences in the eyes, right? So rather than just being able to kind of feel it, it's the idea of actually seeing magnetic fields. Um, and this has been talked about far more with things like birds than other animals. But the idea of being able to overlay the magnetic fields and see where you have stronger versus weaker signals allows birds to potentially get a better idea of how this is working out. And then there's some people who are in both camps who basically say if you actually have to combine both of those things to get a better idea of actually what's happening, it's not necessarily one or the other. Interesting. Mostly turtles have been in the, the camp where the magnetite has been incorporated into portions of the body to give them those weak magnetic signals to tell which direction to go and where to go and where to come from. Uh, and certainly this is most commonly seen in, in species that travel long distances and potentially migrate. So especially with things like sea turtles, where you're traveling a really long distance, you can tell where you're at. But they've also shown through experiments that this is present in the, pretty much all turtles. So you take little teeny tiny turtles, um, pond turtles, things that basically, again, as I said before, move like in the tens to hundreds of meters their entire life. Even though they never use it, they still have the same ability that, they, that you can see that they're being affected by the magnetic fields. So this looks like something that's very ancestral in turtles really, really early on and was present before they, came, they went back to the sea, basically. And now they've just kind of co-opted the ability of this to use this in larger distance travel during sea migration, I suppose, or at least just sea travel in general. Man, what very in- cool. Yeah, what were ancestral turtles using it for? Like, that's awesome. Yeah, chasing birds, <laughs> one would assume. <laughs> um, on the, so we've talked about turtles with their magnetic sense. We've talked about uh, butt breathing, and we've talked about all these cool things. AJ asked on Facebook, what is, in your opinion, Dr. Steve, the weirdest or most interesting feature that turtles have evolved? Good What's your favorite? I suppose if you look at... What's my favorite turtle? Your favorite oh, yeah, feature. It's, <laughs> it's Turtles are all part of a theme, and then there's slight variation on a theme, of course. And so, in many ways, I would think that the, the coolest feature are the, the extrema. 
And rather than going with something like size, you you probably go to something more along the lines of the Melanians and things like tail clubs, which are super weird because I can't just say the most amazing feature is the shell, even though that's absolutely incredible, <laughs> um, because all of them have that. So we're not gonna we're not gonna kind <laughs> of they're all the most incredible. I mean, yeah, like all that. turtles are the best. <laughs> they're all equally cool. Everyone wins. <laughs> um, everyone gets a trophy. But <laughs> no, the I. <laughs> The idea would probably be something more along those lines. I also really like the the idea of the redevelopment of flippers in general. And so that certainly coincides with the idea of sea turtles moving back to the sea and taking their limbs and shifting them back to being not just, of course, webbed, but fully aquatic with flippers. Um, and then the ability of other turtles to just be like, you know, I feel like doing that too. Um, and so that's how you get things like the pig nose turtle slash fly river turtle um, is, again, you get other animals, other members of the group also doing the same thing, also evolving flippers, which I think is pretty incredible. It's I agree. That's a cool, like, <laughs> yeah, the the freshwater flippered turtle. That's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a good turtle. <laughs> it is I'm... by far the best turtle. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would not argue with you. It's, it, I, like, before I got to meet one, I might have been like, eh. But after meeting one, it's hard hard yeah. to vote against it. They're awesome. <laughs> Two more questions that I'm going to ask as we near the very end of our run here. One, uh, so, uh, quick answers. One came uh, in on Facebook while we were are, are discussing just a couple minutes ago from Nelson, who asks, hearkening back to our turtles versus tortoises conversation, uh, box turtles are sure a lot like tortoises. Are they, is that convergent? Um, why don't we call those tortoises? They're not part of the same group. That's a separate group. Yeah. So they, they are part of the, the pond turtle group. So they're, they're actually more closely related to things like painted turtles and sliders, river cooters and things like that. They, in the, the barest form of the term, they're for the most part, completely terrestrial, although a couple of members of the group actually do a, a fair amount of swimming. Um, but they're, they're, they're closer to the idea of a land-based turtle, a.k.a. a tortoise, but they are highly distinct within a different family. That's why we call them turtles. Very cool. One last question, uh, and this was asked by a couple different people. I think it was Devin and Sean both asked a version of this question, so I'll condense it into, in your professional opinion... As a turtle paleontologist, what conditions do you think might lead to turtles developing ninja abilities? <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> well, first off, um, if we assume it's got to be a defense and not an attack mechanism, there's got to be something pretty harsh that they are defending against. Mm. Say, a man in a gigantic tin can-like outfit. Yeah, um, that would do it. Shredding style which would, attacks. It would definitely... Yeah, yeah. It's shredding style attacks. Yeah, that's probably why they got that little kind of can opener beak at the beginning, I would think. Um, but otherwise, uh, what you'd have to do um, to a point is you have to separate or at least get larger openings for the, the plastron and carapace so you have more room for movement of the limbs. You then need to rotate the pelvis significantly um, to allow them to stand kind of on their back. Rather than being quadrupedal, we need to make them bipedal. And currently their hands and feet uh, are relatively more columnar we need to need to make more grasping ability at least with the the forelimbs and the hands themselves and then give them some some nice colored ribbons to to put around certain areas but otherwise 
I think if you if you take especially some of the more mobile groups, some of the semi-aquatic turtles, they're already relatively fast. So if you alter a couple slight things, make them. I mean, could, small teenage mutant turtles isn't so bad though either. Yeah. Do you think they, they can might fight? go through a an arboreal phase? Because I'm thinking primates have the grasping <laughs> hands, and we have yeah. the bipedality. Is that how you get I mean, there? I, I think that would be the most natural way to get grasping ability, probably, because otherwise you have to go to something like tools, and that seems like way beyond what we'd be thinking about. So I well, think a nice a, first step would be maybe it's a feeding strategy thing. You know, if they start oh, yeah. eating a particular food, well, like that is a, bears a and, well, it's a food that's meant to be ha- you know held. Right, right. Uh, something if something, you've got like a something that maybe that's where they, the grasping hands would. So that they have to manipulate. Eat. Yeah, they right, have, right. So they, they have to manipulate something with their hands, and, and that could be a food. Get it into pieces, and maybe cut. It. Yeah, yeah. If you had to manipulate, there yeah, it is. Steve. So it's circle, <laughs> yeah, it's a circle, and then you kind of <laughs> cut it in a couple slices here and there. <laughs> Which would explain why you would find them evolving in a place that is both. Full of danger, yes, and full of their preferred food, yes. That is where you would see mm-hmm. the. And if they have a climbing ancestry, a place with a lot of surfaces to scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. if there were such a place, yeah, hypothetically, if only. Steve, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everybody who has uh, sent us questions and asked us questions. If you have uh, questions that we haven't gotten to answer. Uh, we'll see. We might go through a few of them pretty quick uh, after we officially end the recording, but we are going to end it here. Big thanks to Steve again for joining us. Thanks again to all of our audience. If you've enjoyed the live chats, they will be all going up on YouTube so that you can watch them again afterwards. Uh, they will also be released as audios on the podcast, so in our podcast feed. And we are doing another one next week. Yep. You hear it here first. Next Wednesday, same time, same channel. We will be joined by our friend Laura to do a Q&A about paleopathology. So we will be talking about injuries and disease in the fossil record, uh, like we discussed when Laura joined the podcast mm-hmm. on episode 84. So come on back next week for that. And for now, we will say goodbye. We're going to close it up here. Yes. Thanks again to everybody. I cut you off. No, I was going to say thank you for check for tuning in. And thanks, Steve, for telling us about turtles. Certainly, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, and I look forward to answering any random questions people may have. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. All right. Well, that's an official okay to ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye to everybody uh, for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.